Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I did not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. And when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave all. You all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we open your word, we pray that your spirit would be at work to instruct us, convict us, rebuke us, encourage us, so that we might be equipped for every good work. God, we we thank you and praise you for the blessing that it is to be able to come and gather and hear your word, to study it together. How we pray again that you would be glorified as we do so, that Christ would be exalted in our hearts and in our lives, and that we, your people, would be edified and built up. And it's in your Son Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, if I were to have you this morning write down on a piece of paper the most difficult three word phrase for you to say and pass it forward. I'd imagine that once we collected all of those responses, that we'd have various different three-word phrases. But I'd also imagine that that a great majority or a great sum of those three-word phrases would say either, I am sorry, or I forgive you. I'm sorry, or I forgive you. Three, or two, three-word phrases that are quite difficult. They're very simple, but they're very difficult. They're not always easy for us to say. 
And oftentimes we avoid this difficulty. We avoid this difficulty primarily by avoiding those whom have hurt us or those whom we have hurt. We oftentimes will avoid them by removing them. Removing them from our lives. Removing them from mind and sight. Or we remove ourselves from their lives. We block people on social media. We delete their contact information in our phones. We request to our bosses to be moved to a different part of the office. We request to our bosses that he would remove them or put them at a different part in the office. We have six different sections here at church. Maybe we relocate ourselves to a different position to where we sit in order to ignore or remove ourselves from contact with those people to the best of our abilities. We have numerous grace groups. Maybe to avoid this difficulty, we we switch grace groups. But whatever the case may be, avoiding this difficulty is not actually addressing and dealing with the issue. I mean, it might be in one sense and for some, but avoiding is not addressing the issue that, in the way that we ought to as followers of Jesus. And it ends up leaving us filled with bitterness, malice, and hatred. So the big question for us this morning is, how are we as believers to handle and respond to, to those who have offended and hurt us? And the answer is quite simple. We are to forgive one another. We are to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. Because forgiven people forgive. Forgiven people forgive. And the parable of the unforgiving servant that we just read serves both as a lesson unforgiveness, as well as a warning for when we withhold forgiveness. And the parable will break itself up into three scenes. The first scene, as we read, is the king's act of forgiveness. The second scene, the servant's lack of forgiveness. And the third scene, the king's judgment of the unforgiving. And we'll take a look at each of the three scenes in order. And then lastly, we'll look at Christ's application of the parable itself. So the three scenes in order and then Christ's application of the parable. So look again with me at Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 22. As this provides some of the set up in the context that led to Jesus telling this parable. Verse 21, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now it's important to note that Peter is aware that he ought to forgive. How many times ought I forgive? Ought I forgive my offending brother? He's aware of the fact that he ought to forgive. 
If you just look up, we won't read them, but if you just look at the beginning or really the the middle of chapter 18, in verse 15, it says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Jesus has already been expounding upon the idea of forgiveness, church discipline, reconciliation. Peter, from this teaching and many other teachings, would have been aware of the fact that he ought to forgive. And Peter probably would assume himself quite generous. For when he asks, how often should I forgive my offending brother? Look at his answer to his own question. As many as seven times? As many as seven times? For Peter, again, this might seem quite generous. For it was typical of many rabbinical schools, teachings of various rabbis, to forgive upwards of three times. So Peter's more than doubling the number, assuming to be quite generous. But what's Jesus' reply in verse 22? Peter, there ought to be no limit to your forgiveness. There ought to be no limit to your forgiveness. Now, now where do I get that from? Because he doesn't say those words exactly. Jesus' response is actually, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy Seven times. Or some translations say 70 times seven. I'm not quite sure what the the accurate translation is. 70 times seven or 77 times. But the point, whichever the case may be, is that there ought to be no limit to your forgiveness. For Jesus is being hyperbolic. He's, He's exaggerating to make a point. He does not mean to be taken literally, right? As if we're supposed to start tallying up and counting down, right? 75, 76, 77, one more, and then no more forgiveness, right? 78, wipe your hands clean. No, Jesus' point is there ought to be no limit to your forgiveness. And this leads Jesus to tell this parable of the unforgiving servant to to further flesh out his his point that he's making to Peter and likely the rest of the disciples that are there with him. So let's look at the first scene and the king's great act of forgiveness, which really comes from verses 23 to 27. It describes a king or the master who's coming to settle his accounts. And most likely this is some sort of tax that a king would collect from his officials that were given charge over a region of his kingdom. And if you notice, when he comes to collect, he comes upon a servant who owes a large sum of money. Verse 24, And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed... 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents this servant owes. Just, just for reference, one talent, one talent equals 20 years worth of wages. One talent, 20 years worth of wages at this time. Or about 6,000 denarii. And 
A denarii was one day's wage. 6,000 denarii. One talent. 6,000 denarii or 20 years worth of wages. Multiply that by 10,000. My math is terrible. I'm not going to attempt to do it all in my head right now. I'm not good with numbers. But it's a lot of money. Some of you have already figured out as I was working through that or as you read the passage. It's a ton of money. And the point is, it's an unpayable amount of money. This servant cannot and will not be able to pay what he owes. This amount was ranging in the zillions by today's standards. And it was an amount that no one would have been able to pay. And the servant recognizes that he's unable to pay this debt and that punishment looms over his head. So so what does he resort to doing? Well, if you look at the text in verse 26, so the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. He recognizes as he's at this point of debt collecting, I cannot pay this I am at the mercies of the master and the king. Have patience with me. And how does the master or or the king respond? Verse 27, And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Not only did he extend the time that he would give the servant to pay it, this, this king knows that the servant cannot pay this debt. He has pity on him and he extends mercy to him. And he forgives him of the entire debt. And the punishment that was looming over the servant. I'd hope that the the parallels are quite clear. We owe a great debt to God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 says. And the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 We have transgressed the law of God. And in our transgressions of the law of God, we have personally offended our holy God, creator, and maker. We have transgressed His law and we have offended Him. And the wages, the payment for that is death. And it's an eternal death. Because we have committed an offense and sins against a holy and an infinite and an eternal God. We cannot pay this debt. But turn with me briefly. Keep your finger in Matthew chapter 18. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13. 
Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 say this, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgresses, all of our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. God has forgiven us all of our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. God demands obedience to His law. Perfect obedience and righteousness. And we have failed to do so. We have failed to do so. And in our failure to do so, we deserve punishment for our inability to fulfill the demand for perfection and holiness and obedience. That's what we deserve. But God forgives us in that He cancels that record of debt. Setting aside, nailing it to the cross, the cross where His Son stood or was nailed in our place. When Christ went to Calvary to pay for the sins of His people, He took every one of those sins upon Himself. His sacrifice was not an imprecise or approximate payment for those sins. It was not an imprecise or an approximate payment for those sins. Rather, His death covered every sin that His people had ever committed. We have been forgiven completely in Christ by the sheer mercy of God. We are like the servant with an unpayable debt. And by the sheer love and mercy, kindness of God, there is forgiveness in Christ and in Christ alone. We, like the servant, have been pardoned. We have been pardoned. But look with me at scene 2 back in Matthew chapter 18 to see what happens next with this servant. We're told, starting in verse 28, that when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. The language went out and found implies intentional seeking out rather than just merely stumbling upon this fellow servant. That he actually intentionally went out and sought this servant who owed him. And know how much this fellow servant owes. It says a hundred denarii. Well, if you remember, one denarii was one day's wage. So just a few months worth of wages. Now that's not, in its own right, an insignificant number, right? Three months wages. 
100 denarii, that's, that's a fairly significant amount of money that you would owe someone. But, but by comparison, but by comparison to the debt that this servant owed the master, it is completely insignificant. It's like peanuts. It's nothing. Nothing compared to the debt that this servant owed the master. And he goes out and seeks out this fellow servant that owes him a mere 100 denarii to his 10,000 talents. And look at what happens when he brings the servant to him. He went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him. Notice the physical, violent response. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So what is the fellow servant left to do? He begins to plead for patience. He begins to plead for mercy. He acknowledges the fact that he owes his fellow servant money. Have patience with me. Give me time. And I will pay what I owe you. Note the intentional connection between this servant's response and the previous servant's response to the master. Be patient with me. Be patient with me and I will pay you what I owe you. That was the response of this servant and now his fellow servant. But the response of this servant is very different to his fellow servant. Verse 30. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. He refuses to show mercy to his fellow servant. Refuses to show any ounce of patience, tenderheartedness, and mercy toward his fellow servant. Why would he act this way? How could he act this way? Doesn't he know? Treat others like you'd like to be treated? The golden rule, right? The golden rule that most of us, if not all of us, know, have repeated, have taught to our children, who have we walked through uh, the different classrooms in the school, we might find some variation of this rule. Treat others the way that you want to be treated. The first servant wanted to be treated with mercy and patience. He received it. But now the tables have turned. His fellow servant is pleading, have mercy on me. Give me patience. Give me time. And he throws him in jail until he should pay all of his debts. While we may be shocked, and and we should be shocked, we share the same attitude and heart whenever we harbor bitterness, anger, and wrath towards those who have offended us or towards someone who we care about, that has been offended and that has been hurt. 
we respond with the same attitude and heart. Filled with malice, anger, bitterness, and wrath. Let's move to the third scene. So we might see the king's judgment of the unforgiving. And hopefully feel the weight of Jesus' application that he makes here. Verses 31 to 34. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. His fellow servants look and see what had just happened. And they're distraught. They're distressed. They're offended. They know how much this servant had just been forgiven. And they witness how he responds to his fellow servant. And they run to their master. They run to the king to share with him what had taken place. Verse 32, we see the master's initial shock and reaction The master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. He considers him wicked, evil. I showed you mercy. I forgave you all of your debt. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant? Should you not have extended the same mercy and forgiveness tender-heartedness toward that one who had owed you a mere hundred denarii to your 10,000 talents? I forgave you. You ought to have forgiven him, you wicked servant. And then next we see the king's judgment. And in his anger, His master delivered him to the jailers. Or better translated, torturers. Most of you have a note probably in your Bible that that drops you down to the bottom of the page. Sends him to the jailers, the torturers, until he should pay all of his debt. Notice the king's reaction and judgment. The debt, the 10,000 talent debt, is reinstated. And he's thrown in jail to be tortured until all of it is paid. And note, this this would have been a lifelong sentence of jail and torture. Why? Because as we already noted and talked about, this is an unpayable debt. He wouldn't be able to pay it. There's no one in his family or extended family who would have been able to go out and raise the funds to be able to pay off this debt for him. Nobody would have been able to. He couldn't pay it. So he's sentenced to lifelong jail and torture. Bottom line, this wicked servant is ultimately treated exactly, exactly how he treated his fellow servant. Jesus, in verse 35, following the king or the master's judgment and and response to to the unforgiving servant, makes a quick application. 
Verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So will my heavenly Father do to you. That punishment, that judgment that loomed over the head of the unforgiving servant, that punishment that was then executed upon him by the master, God will execute upon you. God will execute and extend eternal punishment and wrath for a lack of of heartfelt forgiveness and mercy towards others. I hope you feel the weight there. I hope you feel the warning. I'm sure also you're feeling a bit of tension. Tension with the reality that, wait, for a lack of forgiveness, God will... Send me to hell for all eternity? So does that mean for, for a success or a sense of um, perfection in forgiveness, if you will, I'll be able to attain God's forgiveness and mercy? Is Jesus teaching that we attain God's mercy by our forgiveness, our good works of forgiveness, or that we can lose for lack of forgiveness? Again, it's important to remember that Jesus is not, in this parable, teaching how to attain or maintain God's forgiveness in Christ. Rather, He's teaching what should be the proper, the proper, and hear this word, necessary results flowing from the heart of a truly forgiven person. Mercy, forgiveness, tenderheartedness, patience, kindness, love. None of those things are the root of saving faith. None of those are the root of salvation. None of those are the root of mercy and forgiveness in Christ. But they most definitely are the necessary results and fruit of the forgiveness that we have in Christ. It's not the root, but it's the fruit. I remember I had um, some former students who told me at their Christian school, and uh, none of the current students, because this would be many of you because most of our kids are homeschooled, so this is not any of you. But I remember that this student told me the story of their teacher, this Christian school, who when they asked for forgiveness, the teacher said, it's not my job to forgive. That's Jesus' job. Now you know why I'm glad that it was none of our current students. It's not my job to forgive. That's Jesus' job. 
This is sadly untrue. We as followers of Christ have an obligation, have a duty to forgive. It ought to be the natural byproduct of being a new creation in Christ. Turn with me. Keep your finger in Matthew 18. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 30. Ephesians 4, 30. Paul says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Notice what came before and what comes next in this verse. Grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, who God poured into your heart, who is the seal of our redemption. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by filling your mind and filling your heart with bitterness and malice and clamor and anger toward other people. Instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted toward them, and forgiving, forgiving as God in Christ forgave you. Paul, in this, this chapter, is, is walking the church in Ephesus of, of what, the, what the life in the Spirit looks like. What life in the church's new creations looks like. If you look up to verse 22, he says, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. And it's corrupt through deceitful desires. Verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self or the new man, which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Put off the old self. Put off the old manner of life that was prone to being filled with bitterness, malice, anger, hatred. But put on the new man, which is made in the image and likeness of Christ, which is being conformed to the image and likeness of Christ. Put on the new man. Don't be filled with that bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, but be filled with tenderheartedness, grace, love, mercy, patience, forgiving one another as you have been forgiven in Christ. Jesus wanted Peter. Wanted Peter and all the disciples who may have been hearing this parable. Wanted them to see that a conditional 
approach to forgiveness looks nothing like the kingdom that Christ was bringing into the world. And we, like Peter, need to see that forgiveness is at the heart of the gospel and therefore must be a defining characteristic of every truly born-again believer. When Jesus said, forgive 77 times, He was saying that we need to stop counting, we need to stop tallying up offenses and extend to others mercy and forgiveness as God and Christ has extended to us. So what are we to make of all this? How how are we to respond? Well, I want to make quickly, by way of application, six observations. I know that sounds like a lot. Six observations. They'll come quick. Six observations and two exhortations. Six observations and two exhortations. So the six observations... I was thinking, what is it that holds us back from forgiving? What are some of the reasons why we withhold forgiveness? Holds us back. Because when this parable is read, when, when the topic of forgiveness in general is discussed, someone comes to mind. Someone in our lives, in, from one degree to another, maybe multiple people come to mind, I don't know. But someone comes to mind. How ought we to respond? Why do we not respond with the mercy and the forgiveness that we ought to? I wrote down six, and and I'm kind of borrowing them from Terry Johnson and a sermon that he gave. I I tweaked them a little bit. But here here are the six reasons for a lack of forgiveness, potentially. Not all these may apply to you, but, but maybe... One or a few in some way, shape, or form. But first one, we enjoy being a victim. There's something about when we're hurt or someone offends us that we enjoy licking our wounds and fixating on the way that that person has hurt us and the ways in which that person has offended us. We love to throw ourselves pity parties and and invite others to join in on the pity party. And what ends up happening? Bitterness, slander, gossip fills that time and that space. Secondly, we, we enjoy, maybe for some of us, enjoy the feeling of Anger and hatred. Why in the world? Why do any of us enjoy feeling anger and hatred? Well, for some of us, maybe it gives us a sense of passion in life. Gives us a sense of drama and excitement. That we can invite others to be in on. To witness and experience the passion and the drama that's going on. With all of these hurt and broken relationships. We can invite them in on our pity party. Slander and gossip. Get other people to join in on our bitterness and our anger and our wrath. 
toward those who have offended us. Thirdly, this one might hit a little more close to home for some of us. We use non-repentance as an excuse for spite. Full reconciliation. When, when someone has offended you or you have offended another person, full reconciliation is the end goal. We desire for that. We ought to pray for that. Which, in reconciliation, there's a sense in which repentance is necessary for reconciling people. It's a slow process. But we cannot use the offender and their lack of forgiveness for an excuse to have spite toward them. Cannot. We must adopt a forgiving attitude and heart toward that person in hopes and anticipation that they will repent. We ought to be ready in our mind and heart to forgive and reconcile before they even approach us. That ought to be the disposition of our heart and the direction of our mind towards those who have offended us. Again, it is not easy. I'm not making light of this. But we cannot use their non-repentance as an excuse for spite. And anger, malice, wrath, clamor. And related to that, fourthly, one of the reasons why we might withhold forgiveness is we fear the abuse of forgiveness. Fear the abuse of forgiveness. We've been hurt and we've forgiven. They come back. They hurt us again. We forgive them. And on and on and on and on the cycle goes. We fear the abuse. I recognize that. We ought to be wise. We ought to be wise. And we're not talking about avoiding dealing with a crime that's been committed. So don't don't misunderstand me there. We ought to be wise, careful, trying to discern the best ways in which we might bring about reconciliation with this person. Again, your relationship with this person might, may not ever be the same as it was. But that is not an excuse to harbor bitterness, spitefulness. We as followers of Christ who are born again ought to adopt a forgiving and merciful heart with the hopes of repentance, reconciliation. And that when they ask for forgiveness, that this is the last time they're going to come back with that same offense. That's the hope. And that's the prayer. Fifthly and sixthly, reasons why we lack forgiveness. They relate. We think little, too little, and infrequently about the magnitude of our debts against God. We're prone to pride. We're prone to resentment and vengeance. We think too little and infrequently about the magnitude of our debts to God, what we owe Him for our transgressions and our sins and our rebellion. 
And the mercy that he's extended to us in Christ, we think too little and too infrequently about that. Sixthly, reason why we lack forgiveness Because we have not truly come to know or experience God's forgiveness in Christ. That seems to be clearly the case in the parable with this unforgiving servant. That would be the parallel. How does this relate to someone in life? This is someone who has not truly come to know and experience the grace of God in Christ. They may have heard the gospel. They may have been in some sense like the parable's in the sower and the seed, some sort of initial reception of it. But clearly, the fruit bears forth the evidence that they never truly embraced and experienced the saving realities and the sanctifying realities of the gospel. So lastly, two exhortations. Two exhortations. Heed the warning. Listen to the warning that Christ gives to Peter and those who are listening. Heed the warning. So will my heavenly Father do to every one of you who does not forgive his brother from his heart. Heed that warning. Let it sink in. And forgive. Heed the warning And forgive those who have offended and hurt you. Again, it is not easy. But it ought to be the default heart position of all who have truly come to know and experience God's forgiveness in Christ. I love this quote from J.C. Ryle. And he says, Saving faith and real converting grace will always produce some conformity to the image of of Christ. Always. Christians ought to forgive. It ought, we ought to forgive. We ought to show mercy in the same way that fish ought to swim and birds ought to fly. Why? Because fish swim. It's what they do. They're fish. Birds Fly. Because that's what they do. They're birds. Christians ought to love, ought to be gracious, ought to be merciful, tender hearted, and impatient. We ought to forgive because that's what we do as spirit indwelt new creations who are being conformed to the image and likeness of. Of Christ. Heed the warning and forgive. Last exhortation. We must attend regularly to the means of grace. We must attend regularly to the means of grace. We must regularly be in the Word, reading it, hearing it read, hearing it preached. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We must be regularly communing with fellow believers. Attending to the sacraments, the visible pictures of the gospel. 
We need to be regularly reminded of the saving and sanctifying realities of the gospel. And the means of grace help to that end. Provide for us to that end. We need to be regularly in prayer that the Spirit would give us a heart of mercy and forgiveness. There's no coincidence as to why Jesus in the Lord's Prayer tacks on at the end. Help us to forgive. Forgive us as we have forgiven our debtors. May we be constant in prayer for a merciful and forgiving heart. How are we as believers to begin to respond to those who have offended us? We are to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. Because forgiven people forgive. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Let's pray.